You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Well, Merry Christmas. We're glad you're here with us this morning on this Christmas Eve. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and our typical pattern is now to turn our attention to the Bible to hear God speak from his word. But before I begin, I want to give a special welcome to the kids that are among us. I know often kids are sometimes off at our classes, but if you're here with your parents here in the service this morning, we're so glad you're here with us. We want you to be able to benefit from hearing God's word here this morning as well. Why don't you join me as we now pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We ask now that you would open our eyes and enliven our hearts to receive your word. Help us to hear your voice speak. And may some, even this morning, turn in faith to trust you afresh. We're asking that you would break into our minds and hearts this morning by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear as I read these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. How many of you heard those words before? So many. How many of you know where that comes from? Uh, Many of you. So that's the first stanza of the famous poem turned hymn called Christmas Bells. It was written by poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. When I mentioned that to my daughter earlier, she said, oh yeah, I I know him, and I had never heard of him before. So that shows you how uncultured I am. But he was the first American to translate Dante's Divine Comedy. He lectured at Harvard, when that used to mean something, and he became highly successful, a highly successful poet. By 1874, he was earning $3,000 per poem. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money to us, but today's money, that would be $77,000 for each of his poems. Edgar Allan Poe, a name that probably many of you have heard of, a contemporary of his, called Henry Longfellow unquestionably the best poet in America. That's high praise. They later had a falling out in their friendship. His poem, Christmas Bells, was remade into a Casting Crowns song, and so many of you might know that version. It was written in a season of great despair. He had lost his first wife, He had remarried, he had lost his second wife. This was during the Civil War when it was raging. And his son had just been injured in the war. And as he's sitting at his bedside with his son injured, he heard the church bells ringing in the distance. And that's when he penned this famous poem. And in the second to last stanza of the poem, he captures perhaps what many of us feel today and what many were feeling in his day. Here as I read that, he writes, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. There is no peace 
on earth. And we don't have to look far to see the accuracy of that statement today, do we? A war still rages on in the Middle East and in Ukraine. There's culture wars and political infighting and it only looks to increase with an election year coming up. While our main concern here in Minnesota is that we don't have any snow, <laughs> the rest of the world faces much conflict. Conflict is everywhere, isn't it? But even if we you know, avoid the news, shut off all the social media, we know that conflict can strike closer to home as well. Family dynamics are not always Easy relationships with the in-laws or with the siblings or with the parents or with the children can be strained. You might be sitting next to some of those people right now and now's not the time to give those elbows. We live with relational tensions between friends and family and neighbors and colleagues, even at the holidays, don't we? I remember one Christmas in particular. When I was a little kid, my parents had gifted me a brand new basketball and I was thrilled. I had my own brand new basketball and my brother wanted to play with it and I said no because it's mine and they went ahead and bought him one as well and I just thought this is the most rotten Christmas ever. <laughs> like what good is having your own basketball if you cannot not share it? <laughs> Perhaps you kids are feeling some of that this morning. Maybe there's a little bit more fighting at home with more time at home. But even if all of our relationships are good, which is rare, many of us still long for a different type of peace. Maybe it's young parents, you want peace and quiet. But we all want this deep sense of inner peace this morning, don't we? This peace within. The peace that is the opposite of being angry and stressed and anxious. We wanna be at peace with our thoughts, we wanna be at peace with our emotions, we want to be at peace with our body. We want to be free of self-condemnation, the thoughts that come into our minds. We want to be free of destructive habits. We want peace of mind. Even more than anything else in the world, we want to be happy and we want to be content. We want to feel like we're not being pulled in a hundred directions this morning. I wonder if anyone can resonate with that, that we're longing more than anything else, more than any gift that you might get under the tree, that you would just have the settled sense of inner peace. Peace is more desirable and more elusive than ever in our world today. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is how can we experience this peace? This leads us to our passage that we've been looking at this entire month. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Isaiah. If you're new among us, you can grab one of those pew Bibles in the seat in front of you, and you can find it on page 573. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can pull it up there as well. We're in Isaiah chapter nine. And if you're new among us, just a little bit of context. The book of Isaiah was written roughly 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But Isaiah, this man, this prophet of God, spoke of a son that would come to establish God's kingdom. And part of that prophecy in Isaiah 9-6, he gives four titles, four names for this son that would come. And I'm gonna read that. Isaiah 9-6 says, for to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we already looked at the first three of those names. You can go back and watch those sermons online if you'd like. But this morning, we're studying the title, the fourth one, Prince of Peace. And so I want to ask three questions this morning. The first is, what did the Prince of Peace, what did that phrase, that title, mean to Israel when they heard it? What would Isaiah and his contemporaries have understood it to mean? Second question, how did Jesus fulfill this title and name? If we look at our world today, as we already mentioned, wars rage on, conflict is everywhere. How did Jesus bring peace, if that's in fact what he did? And the third question is, what does this mean for us? What does Jesus being the Prince of Peace mean for us today, this week, this coming year? Does it have any lasting change or is it just one of those Christian cliches that we use? What did the Prince of Peace mean to Israel? How did Jesus fulfill this title? And now what does it mean for us today? So first, what did the Prince of Peace mean to Israel? To understand the significance of this title, we have to understand the context and in particular, the political context surrounding the nation of Israel at this time. In those days, Israel was facing dire circumstances. They were being judged by God for their wickedness. If you want, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And we're just going to look at a few of those verses very quickly. The opening, of, the opening of Isaiah 1 begins with this vision that the whole nation is sick, sick, diseased, from head all the way to the toes. Uh, look with me at verse Five of Isaiah 1. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in this nation, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're surrounded by their enemies. Look at verse 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Foreigners devour your land. It's a besieged city. So what the nation of Israel is facing is very dire. God is pronouncing judgment on them. In fact, God is fed up with any of their religious activities. Look with me down in verse 14. Your new moons and feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is God speaking of the nation of Israel as they come to worship their God. He's saying, I'm tired of it. I want none of it. All of this is just a charade. So the, the picture here is really, really sad. The, their hands are full of blood. They're oppressing justice, uh, oppressing orphans and widows, actually verse, down in verse 23, he says, they do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. So what, what's taking place in the nation of Israel is that things are going from bad to worse. Not only are, are they falling apart as a nation, but God is fed up. He's angry 
His anger burns hot against this nation and he's gonna bring judgment by foreign nations in order to destroy them. And yet it's in the midst of this context that the prophecy of this son comes. It's spoken into the midst of distress and darkness and gloom. So the statement that the people dwell in deep darkness is true of when this prophecy was first written. And just pausing for a moment here, I wonder if any of us feel that sense of gloom and darkness this morning. Despite it being Christmas Eve, perhaps your heart weighs heavy this morning. Maybe it's the first or the next Christmas that you'll spend without a loved one. Despite the smile on our faces, we feel lonely and sad and weary. If that's you this morning, we're so glad you're here because God has a specific word for you from this passage. It's into this darkness and sadness that God gives us one of the most stunning, amazing, magnificent promises in all of the Bible. So returning to our question, what did Prince of Peace mean to Israel when they heard this prophecy? They were expecting political peace or national peace. They were expecting no more war, no more destruction, no more worrying about invasion or exile or enslavement. This is very different than how we often understand the title Prince of Peace, isn't it? When I think of Prince of Peace, very often, even before I studied this passage, I thought of a peacemaker, like a mediator, like a referee in, in a boxing ring. You know, you want to punch him in the head and you want to punch him in the head and I, I'm going to get in there and make sure everyone just gets along. I think of this, you know, balanced, neutral third party. But that's not what is in view with this title. The word prince could also be translated army commander or a general, some sort of military leader. This is less Ned Flanders and more Colin Powell. The peace that he's going to establish is not by compromise and negotiation, making sure two warring parties are going to finally get along. It's that he is going to come and conquer and destroy his enemies. The title, Prince of Peace, is not this warm and fuzzy image of a baby. It's the image of a general that leads an army to establish a righteous kingdom. So what Israel hears when they hear the title, Prince of Peace, is they're looking for this political leader that's going to come and bring an end to all wars. Now, look at Isaiah 9. Go back to Isaiah 9, and you can see this made more clear in verses four and five. It says, Isaiah 9, four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So basically, any oppressors that we might have, he breaks their power. And then verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The picture there is that the end of all war. No more boots needed for battle. All the blood-stained garments are burned. He brings peace from war and oppression. Now look with me at verse seven. Just scan down two more verses. And it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, 
there will be no end. So what this son is going to do is come as this warrior army general, eliminate all of his enemies, establish peace, and there will be no end to the kingdom of peace that he will establish. That's the first type of peace that Isaiah and his contemporaries would have expected that this coming son would bring. Now, the second type of peace is this idea of this peace with creation. If you turn with me to Isaiah 11, just two chapters later, there's this picture of this future king and what he's going to do. Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. So what's taking place there is that there, there's, it's gonna be a Davidic king, Jesse is David's father, and there's gonna be this Davidic king that comes. And then now, verse six shows us what his rule and reign will bring about. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What this is describing is this day that is coming, that this king is going to establish peace, this unparalleled peace among creation itself, between man and man and between animal and animal. I don't know about the last time you saw a lamb next to, or a goat next to a leopard, but usually that's his lunch. Or a child playing with a cobra. Most of us would not be comfortable with that. Isaiah is describing this future day when this is going to take place because there's going to be unparalleled, unheard of peace at work in the world. So we get this idea of political peace, this idea of peace among creation. And the third type of peace that's in view in Isaiah is this sense of inner peace that we talked about. Isaiah 26.3, just listen as I read it. This third type of peace, many of you probably know this verse. It says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The use of peace here is this idea of inner peace. That if you would put your mind on God and trust in him, it's the opposite of anxiety and stress, but you'll have this perfect inner peace. Isaiah 55, 12 envisions a day when the people will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth singing. It's the peace of celebration, of being stress-free and free from all anxiety. This is the peace that Jesus often speaks about in the Gospel of John. John 14, 27, Jesus says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you see what Jesus does there? He contrasts his peace that he gives with being troubled and with being afraid. And so he's speaking of this deep abiding sense of inner peace that whatever happens in the world, even if World War III breaks out, I can say it's gonna be okay. If anyone could sell that peace, package it up in pill form, it would go flying off the shelves. Immediate best 
seller. It's the peace that we often think about when we quote Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the what? Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace that we can have in Jesus is the kind that transcends understanding transcends logical reasoning. Like if you have sepsis or if you're battling stage four and you're essentially gonna be dead in a matter of weeks or months, you can still sing the song, it's well with my soul. You can have peace. That's the peace that's in view here. So we come back to our opening question. What did Prince of Peace mean to Israel? It meant, no politi- it meant political peace, interpersonal peace, no more war, no more disputes between families and tribes. It meant peace between man and creation. Predator and prey will dwell side by side. No more disease and disasters and even death itself. And third, it envisions this inner peace, this peace within. Freedom from anxiety and fears and doubts and stress and sorrow and despair. So when Isaiah says that this child will be called the Prince of Peace, there's some lofty expectations here that it's gonna increase forever and ever. Before we move on to the second question, let me mention one more thing that's important to notice. Isaiah does not speak of peace in the shallow sense. We often speak of peace in a shallow sense. We might say, peace be with you, you know, peace out. Uh, We might put it on the end of our uh, email. And yet, Isaiah envisions that peace is very costly. Like, just just think about the Middle East for a moment. Everyone wants to call for a ceasefire, and I don't want to get very political. But with kidnapped civilians and hostages, it's very unlikely that they're going to have peace anytime soon because there's still things that need to be reconciled. And so, in the book of Isaiah and the prophets, they often speak of We don't speak of shallow peace. In Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah warned the people, and he says, there's people that go around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's Jeremiah 6.14. He says, beware of those people, because they're saying, oh, we'll, we'll have peace, when there is actually no peace. In Isaiah, this is said twice. There is no peace for the wicked. So while we all want peace, there is no peace for the wicked, for those who disobey, for those who sin against a holy God. And that's the dissonance that we feel, or we ought to feel, when we hear this title, Prince of Peace. We think of this regal peacemaker that's gonna come and just mediate and kind of smooth things over. But it describes this fierce warrior king who's come to execute justice and conquer his enemies. And the only way he's gonna obtain peace is by destroying and bringing judgment and justice against sinners. And if we look at our own lives, we realize that we're gonna be caught up in the judgment. This is why now we turn to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. How did Jesus fulfill this title and name? And this is where the wonder, the wonder, the complete, unthinkable, amazing wonder of Christmas comes into focus. Jesus did not come as an army general. He came 
not to conquer his enemies by force with a sword. He came as a child born to an unmarried mother in the most unlikely of places with no fanfare. And the way he came into the world is critically important. That's why we celebrate it at Christmas. The way he came into the world will characterize the nature of his ministry. He came humbly because his ministry would be to the lowly. He came to save sinners and to bring about peace with God. You see, one of the critical things we have to understand about Jesus' fulfillment of this title, Prince of Peace, is that he comes in two waves. The first coming, which we celebrate, that took place 2,000 years ago, Jesus came so that we would have this deep, abiding inner peace, but not just with ourselves, but before a holy God whom we have offended. Jesus will establish this perfect peace, and then in his second coming, he will establish this perfect peace forever, banishing all war, no more blood-stained garments, no more disease, disasters, and depression. And so how did Jesus do this? He did it through his death and sacrifice. So turn with me to Isaiah 53, because Isaiah saw all of this, and he prophesied about it. Isaiah 53, verse four says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's speaking of this suffering servant, which is the same as this son and this Davidic king. And it says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the good news of Christmas, that instead of coming with legions of angels to destroy all of his enemies, Jesus came to be crushed on the cross for our sins and for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment or the wrath so that we could have peace. So the greatest conflict in the war that rages is not the one out there. It's actually the one that rages within every single heart. Hearts that resist God, hearts that hate God, that disobey him, refuse to humble ourselves before him, that say, I don't want what you are here to give. It's a heart of pride that keeps many from coming to Jesus. And this is why Christmas is so glorious. Jesus came to give peace to the wicked. This is the good news. Our problem is not the war out there. It's not the lack of inner peace that we have. Our problem is that we're estranged from God and we are his enemies. And if Jesus were to come to conquer and destroy his enemies, we would all be wiped away. But the good news of Christmas is that the Prince of Peace came to save and die for his enemies, to establish peace with a holy God. Jesus came knowing our sad and terrible situation, and he came to save and to bring light and life and so that we might have peace. And that's why in Luke 2, when Jesus 
announcement of his birth is made, what do they say? What do the angels declare? Who know what's going on. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So our third question, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us this morning? Everyone is longing for peace. Medication very often is marketed so that you would have peace of mind. Home security systems are marketed to give you peace of mind. Vitamins prey upon our fears. The world has all of their peace substitutes. They say, you know, do, do some transcendental meditation. Kind of distance yourself from all of your stuff and belongings. So if your you know, car window gets smashed in, you can just be like, oh, it's the only stuff, right? And meanwhile, another part of our culture says, the way you get peace is by accumulating more and more. Get more insurance, make more money, insulate yourself from anxiety and worry. And still another pathway to peace that our world sells is just self-love. You know, just remove any stigma of shame and guilt and blame. And yet deep down we know that it doesn't work. The reason we lack inner peace is because no matter how much you tell yourself, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. We know deep down that what we need is to be reconciled with a holy God. We desperately need peace with God. And yet there is no peace for the wicked, which is why we need Jesus to cleanse us from our wickedness and to reconcile us to the Father. So the main point this morning, the main point of the entire sermon is that true and lasting peace can only be found in Jesus true and lasting peace. It's not found in any present under the tree. It's not found in family coming or family going away. It's not found in how much you can eat or how much you can lose in the new year. It's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And he offers all the free gift of peace if we will repent and trust in him alone. And one day he is coming. He will come to conquer every enemy and to establish perfect peace. And so, even this morning now, I I know that there are some among us who are visiting and, and we're so glad you're here. There are those who are following Jesus and there are those who are not. You're invited to receive the peace of God through receiving the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Whatever trials or suffering or sorrows that you face, Jesus offers a peace that transcends understanding. And you can receive that this morning, very simply, just by praying, Lord, I confess my sinfulness, my sinful nature, my sins that stand against me, that condemn me, that I know that deep down in my own heart, that if I were to stand before God, I would be guilty. And yet I look to you and your completed work on the cross as my only hope in life and in death. Forgive me, O Lord, and receive me as your beloved child. And for all those who are trusting in Jesus, this Christmas we celebrate a wonderful counselor who plans all of our steps, a mighty God, Jesus, who is God in the flesh our everlasting Father who has come to establish his kingdom forever and our Prince of Peace who gives us peace with a holy God and that we can have life. And Jesus is going to return to establish perfect peace. 
political peace, peace with creation, universal and global peace, and this peace will continue forever and ever and never end. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Christmas Bells, descended into this place of despair where he said, there is no peace. People mock peace on earth. But then he concludes with this final stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. May that be true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would break into the darkness with your light of life and give every heart a taste of your peace, your perfect peace that comes only by your son. So help us to see and behold and receive the wonder of Christmas, that Christ has come and that he's coming again. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.